It's November 27th, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we cover the geek beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond, and joining us today is Osatui to tell us about the upcoming VEX Robotics Final. Finally, we'll find out about some new revelations about planets beyond our solar system. It's part of an ongoing series we call Exoplanet Palooza. Have your questions and suggestions and thoughts about alien worlds ready to call in or tweet. But first, the headlines. A record-setting NASA launch last week carried the first satellite designed and built at the University of Hawaii into space. Students at the UH Small Satellite Program had been working on their CubeSat or or Cube Satellite or CubeSat for four years, dubbed Ho'oponopono 2 or H2. The CubeSat was one of 29 sa- uh, satellites fired into space from NASA's flight facility in Virginia, part of a record-setting diverse payload that included everything from high school projects to military missile systems. Ho'oponopono 2 weighs 9 pounds and costs $220,000, but UH officials say that it can do the work of a satellite 20 times its size and 40 times more expensive. The CubeSat's focus will be radar calibration and monitoring for objects in space, ranging from other satellites to asteroids to space junk. It was the result of a two-year satellite design and fabrication competition kicked off in 2009 by the Air Force Office of Scientific Research. UH won third place in January of 2011, thus earning the slot in an upcoming NASA launch. The UH Small Satellite Program was founded 12 years ago by College of Engineering Professor Wayne Sharoma, who we featured here on Bite Marks Cafe earlier this year. It has trained more than 250 students and brought in more than a million dollars in funding. Sharoma said in a statement, creating, building, and deploying the first radar calibration satellite in CubeSat form demonstrated the ability of our UH student team to address an urgent operational need at a very low cost and simultaneously provide immense educational value. Now, this uh, CubeSat is really you know, something that, uh, like uh, Professor Sharoma said, is to help calibrate radar. So it is out there. It's going to be up there for about a year. And right now, between the launch, which was on the 20th, and now they're kind of in the um, sort of initialization phase. And then I think right after this, they'll start to actually base some of the the, um, the radar on Earth will start to calibrate. Right, 80-plus uh, 80, 80 C-band radar tracking mm-hmm. stations around the world. I know our ham radio fans probably know more about that than we do. But um, it's interesting to see all of these space projects coming to fruition all pretty close together. We had uh, Wayne Shroma on, and we talked about the upcoming space launch, the first space launch from Hawaii, from mm-hmm. the Pacific Missile Range, and that's coming up next year. So it all kind of ties together. Yeah, so interesting project, and they're actually now you know uh, tracking it. And I think uh, we'll have some interesting stories to tell, you know, in the course of the year that it's actually being in use. Right. Once the realm of science fiction, we're now one step closer to a world where the male Y chromosome is no longer needed for reproduction, thanks to new research out of the Institute for Biogenesis Research at the University of Hawaii School of Medicine. The new study, published last week in the journal Science, explains how scientists were able to produce live mouse progeny using germ cells from otherwise infertile male mice, limiting their contribution to only two genes. The objective of the research was to identify the minimum Y chromosome contribution required to generate a healthy first-generation mouse, one that could reproduce on its own without further technological intervention. Transgenic male mice with only two Y genes were used, and while there were considerable infertile Um, considerably infertile, the scientists were able to find a few usable cells in their underdeveloped sperm. 
The researchers were able to achieve fertilization in the lab and transfer the embryos to surrogate female mice, which ultimately bore healthy offspring. The team notes that their findings are relevant but not directly translatable to human fertility cases. Even so, the researchers hope their success in mouse studies may pave the way for advances in treating infertility in human males. But lead researcher Monica Ward adds, Our mouse study proves that the Y-chromosome contribution can be brought to a bare minimum. It may be possible to eliminate the mouse Y-chromosome altogether if appropriate replacements are made for those two genes. Now, you know, I'm a little concerned about that last (laughs) statement because, you know, I always read this story as being something that they took from the male Y-chromosome and they reduced the the let's say the dependence on it by by going down to the minimum two genes but you still needed the y chromosome now why i'm worried that if there is no longer a need for the y chromosome if you can replace those two genes from other sources that you're in business. would imply well it would imply uh we can direct our attentions to other things i don't know bert but actually they did make several points for example this these genes that they found being critical for mouse reproduction, Mm -hmm. do not have uh, equivalents in humans. So it's not like we can say, okay, so we use the exact pair in humans and we've done the same thing. But still, it certainly does kind of trigger the imagination. uh, Of a society that might not necessarily need males to reproduce. Well, that that could be one possibility for sure. But, uh, you know, she did, the the researcher also in the press release, although it it clearly made headlines uh, in the science community for what you could imagine it meant, she did emphasize the importance of the Y chromosome for normal, unassisted fertilization, other aspects of reproduction. So, uh, you know, we, we don't have to be looking for a new job just yet. Okay, that's good. Last week, we told you about the upcoming Startup Paradise Initiative, in, including a venture capital summit and demo day set for next Wednesday. Now, Hawaii-based accelerator Blue Startups is joining the program, which will feature the seven startup companies in its second cohort. In addition, a second event will be held in Silicon Valley on December 11th, part of the third annual 500 Startups event that will allow organizers to showcase Hawaii's technology startups on a national stage. Next week's VC Summit and Demo Day, taking place at the Sheraton Waikiki, is being presented by Sultan Ventures and Blue Startups, as well as the Hawaii Strategic Development Corporation's High Growth Initiative and the federally funded Energy Accelerator Program. The event is described as the launch event for the Startup Paradise Initiative, which organizers say grew out of the organic use of the term to describe the entrepreneurial scene in Hawaii, ultimately being embraced by the major players in the state's innovation sector. Well, Google Ventures advisor Don Dodge will be the keynote speaker, and Jonathan Sundlin from the uh, thecrowdcafe.com will lead a workshop on crowdfunding. There's also a second-day deep-dive program on crowdfunding being held downtown. In addition to taking the show on the road, the following week, Blue Startups announced that it will it will also be hosting a Startup Paradise Mixer in San Francisco up there on uh, December 13th, hoping to draw people with Hawaii ties to represent the various upcoming um, sectors in the island. So it's kind of an interesting uh, full day of events. You know, not only do, are they you know, presenting um, a Google Advisor, a Google Ventures Advisor, but they're also having talks about the crowdfunding, and then they're going to cap it off with the uh, sort of demo day by the uh, second cohort. So 
Um, and then, of course, they, you know, they take them to uh, Silicon Valley and do the, the whole thing all over again. Right, and, and because of this partnership, those those companies will be the ones that are put on display. You've got GB or Gibi, the uh, pet finding mm-hmm. uh, uh, app and uh, device. We had Happy Hour Pal, on the previous show, guests yeah. on We've the show. We've also had the Sea Rescue. That's uh, right, yeah. that's right. So a lot of uh, familiar folks. I like kind of that conversation about the organic development of the term startup paradise, mm-hmm. which uh, we talked about on last week's show. I know that you know people are always trying to find that good name for what Hawaii is. You want to be Silicon Valley? You don't want to be yeah. Pineapple Valley. So what are you going to come up with? I guess Startup Paradise. Start, I think Startup Paradise is, is is gaining some traction. So from a branding standpoint, uh, you know, we'll see we'll see how that goes. Absolutely. Yeah. The virtual currency known as Bitcoin has had a roller coaster ride as of late, both in its exchange value and its credibility beyond the tech set. One Bitcoin was worth $35 earlier this year when the digital money was the focus of government investigations and controversy. Now the value of a Bitcoin is over, actually today it went over $1,000, and one of the more noteworthy purchases made with Bitcoin made headlines on Friday. Richard Branson announced that a female flight attendant based in Hawaii, bought a ticket on Virgin Galactic, hoping to take a trip into space. Well, the latest boost in the value of bitcoins came as as a result of a U.S. Senate committee hearing last week when the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission testified that bitcoins were legitimate financial instruments with their own benefits and risks. Bitcoins were born in 2008 and are often described as cryptocurrency using decentralized systems and cryptography to manage and validate transactions. Two years later, the value of a Bitcoin still shifted widely from $0.30 to $30. Bitcoins captured the public's imagination soon afterward with reports of secret marketplaces for drugs and other contraband items running on Bitcoins. In October, the FBI shut down one of the largest markets called Silk Road, prompting the currency to lose a third of its value. But of course, it's recovered since then, and more companies do accept payments in Bitcoin. They include WordPress, Reddit, OkCupid, and domain registrar Namecheap. Of course, Bitcoin is particularly popular in geekier corners of the net for uh, services like the Pirate Bay and Easy TV. Well, you know, we probably uh, need to have a show about uh, Bitcoin because there's a whole story about it. I mean, I think it's really intriguing. I was reading a, a little bit about the uh, the guy who supposedly started, and it's a kind of a fictitious uh, right, nobody really knows. Really, yeah, nobody knows. The name that is given to this person is Satoshi Nakamoto, but they don't even know if that is a real person or if he's even Japanese for right. that matter. But it was a scientific paper or you know, mathematical paper basically conceiving how this would work, mm-hmm. and it was put into place. And the interesting thing about Bitcoin is that it, it is essentially anonymous, but it is, in, it is completely public as well because that's how you validate it. So you can see every transaction ever made with Bitcoin uh, between merchants or or buyers and sellers. In fact, also in the news was, I think in the last couple of days, there was a 195,000 Bitcoins changed value. And so that's like $150 million moved from one party to another. We don't know who mm-hmm. and where what what it was for, but we did see that money move. And evidently, there are only a certain amount of bitcoins, something like twenty one million of them, and that's it. There's never going to be any more. So you know. That's but I re- I remember th- you know people talking about you could run a bitcoin miner on your computer mm-hmm. while you go, while you sleep, and back then they were easy to generate. Now the math is so complex; it'll take more money in electricity to run a computer to get a Bitcoin than right. the Bitcoin is worth. In fact, they're, they're telling you if you want to get a Bitcoin, the easiest way to do it is buy it. Right. But uh, the, but people who were playing around back then, there was the story of a Norwegian man. He, he said, oh, okay, I'll buy about 30 bucks in Bitcoin. What the heck? My friend thinks it's cool. He forgot about it. You know, three years later, he's a millionaire. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a fun geek story for yep. sure. 
And uh, looking ahead on a tech calendar, plans are moving forward to stage Hawaii's first official mini maker fair in March of next year. The local maker community needs to help needs help to organize the event. And next uh, week Tuesday bring um, let's see next week Tuesday brings a critical planning meeting. If you're a maker, love a maker, or would like to become one, head over to the Box Jelly in Kaka'ako. And this is happening 6 p.m. on December 3rd, which is a Tuesday. Yep, and uh, budding filmmakers are invited to attend a free public talk next Thursday, December 5th, where Cliff Watson, he's of CDW Productions, will give an overview of using Final Cut Pro X. That's Apple's prosumer video editing tool. Watson will walk through the interface, explain his workflow, and offer tips and tricks. His talk will be at 7 p.m. next Thursday in Kraus Hall. And now joining us here in the studio is Osatui, the teacher, professor over at, well, I don't professor, teacher over at McKinley <laughs> High School. You're a professor to me. And sophomore over at the McKinley, Bernard Kung, and they're here to tell us about the upcoming VEX Robotics Competition. Welcome to the show, Osa and Bernard. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having us. Well, you know, we've been, uh, we love robotics. I mean, we've been trying, you know, following all these robotics activities. But uh, so this year, what, the VEX final is happening someplace other than the, uh, uh, I think it was a convention center before, right? We used to have the Pan Pacific Championship, mm-hmm. which had over 100 teams at the uh, convention center. Mm-hmm. Now, VEX is growing so large worldwide that they need to create state championship models in order to qualify teams for the world championship. So now we have the Hawaii State VEX Championship sponsored by Hawaii Electric, which will qualify 10 teams to go to Anaheim oh. in April next so year. So that good. makes sense because I remember seeing the announcement was like this is the first state championship for VEX. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. I thought we had the, the Pan well, Pacific International well, Championship. Well, and then there was a big sure. one over uh, Stan Sheriff. Right? It was another. That right. was the yeah, that's that first. Was, oh, that was first. Yeah. Sorry. That, was first. <laughs> no, um, that um, begins in January. Yeah. Now, Bernard, uh, you're part of the uh, McKinley team. Yes. And every year, okay, I mean, it, it's really kind of interesting because every year they change the, the game plan, right? So what's the game plan for the robots this year? For this year's VEX Challenge, is the game is called Toss Up. Mm-hmm. And in this game, um, you teams have to score buckyballs into stashes, and they also have to um, score big balls into stashes. But there are also three zones, a hanging zone, middle zone, and goal zone where you can score points just by having objects on the floor. And this hmm. year's end game is to hang. Mm-hmm. So teams have to find a way to hang their robots. And a low hang would be underneath the 12-inch um, perimeter, and I think the high hang is above it. And you can also high hang with a ball, which um, gives you more points towards the match. Now, these these... Uh, matches are really exciting to watch, and it's almost Rube Goldbergian in terms of the ways you come up with solutions to move these objects. But in all the ones that I've been able to attend, you're looking at Nerf balls, you're looking at foam tubes and things like that. But you said buckyballs, and those are really strong magnetic no, balls? Um, no, buckyballs, these are like plastic balls, but they're shaped like um, hexagons. Oh, of, okay. Like, yeah. okay. created icosahedrons. So, oh, I see, I see. I was about to say, if they were balls, magnetic, that'd be a much more <laughs> complex competition. Now, when you talk about, um, you know, the, the hanging part, what, describe what that actually means. What is it, you know, to, to accomplish in terms of uh, hanging the, the, uh, the robot? Well, to hang... Um, you're limited to an 18 by 18 by 18 inch robot. Mm-hmm. So they made the hanging bar this year 40 inches. So a challenge for most teams is to have your robot reach 40 inches in order to hang. Mm-hmm. So many teams right now would be making possibly like an attachment that would go up with an arm to like reach the hanging bar. Mm-hmm. And from there, another challenge is trying to lift your robot because robots get pretty heavy, made out of like steel and aluminum. 
and like plastic gears and many mm-hmm. you need to um you're only allowed 10 motors so most teams mm. have about a four to six motor drive so i see a lot of teams trying to um do a pto which would be to shift your drive motors into your arm motors to give you that extra power to mm-hmm. hang I love. I mean, already my the gears in my brain are starting to to hey. fly off. <laughs> but I mean, that's that's why the the youth of the future can can solve these problems. Now, Osa, uh, already you know we 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 did kind of confuse like what's first, what's vex. I mean, Pan Pacific. Um, I mean, can you tell me about kind of the uh, at your school, for example, how broad are the different types of robotics programs? So at our our school, we have three different robots that compete in VEX, basically. Um, and it's because it's only an 18 by 18 by 18 inch cube. It's something that the kids can build on their own. They can experiment. And then there's multiple competitions that happen throughout the state. So they can go to one competition, find out, oh, my robot sucks. Build, build, build. You know, next competition, wait, my robot actually wants something. And then, so it, there's an iterative process with that. With first, however, the robot is um, 120 pounds. So you just build one, you compete with it a couple of I times, see, and I that's see. pretty much mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And how how does McKinley do? Uh, we sat out last year because mm. we had such a young team, but we're going to be back in it this year, and hopefully we will come away. Well, it's not always about a winning. Well, Bernard, <laughs> uh, how many people are on the team? And tell me what is your kind of role in the team? Right now, I think there are about twelve people on the team or so that mm-hmm. stay, you know, stay on the team. And um. My role right now is mechanical for first, and for Vex, I build, design the robot, and I have my partner who programs the robot. Because in the first 15 seconds of the match, you have an autonomous, so he programs the autonomous part. Mm-hmm. So how many, uh, you said there's 10 teams? 10 teams will qualify, qualify from the state championship. Okay, so how many teams trip. are actually participating in this? Uh, there will be 40 teams. 40? Yeah. And so. these are uh, basically schools across the uh, all across the state, the state. all mm-hmm. across the state, from the Big Island all the way to Kauai. Uh, there's about uh, there well, there are 137 Vex teams um, that have registered in Hawaii, and now we're actually starting off something called Vex IQ, which is for the elementary age. So if you've seen FLL, where Vex is now in the game, mm-hmm. and they're coming up with some plastic, you know, snap together pieces. So we're getting towards the younger ones, getting them involved. Good. So uh, it, it is a, it's it's great for the kids that are participating, but I find it a, a thrilling spectator sport as well. If somebody wanted to to watch, I mean, where and when? How can they they check it out? Uh, they can come to the Honolulu Community College, which is going to be hosting it. They have Team Hawaii Robotics. There are one Vex U team, um, university level team, and they'll be hosting it on December twentieth and twenty first. We suggest coming the twenty first after lunch. That's when all the the elimination matches will take mm-hmm. place, and that's pretty much when all the excitement will be. And where can someone go to find out more? I would just Google Hawaii Vex State Championship. That's the easiest way to get to the website. That And this is a free event so people can show up at uh, HEC and, and enjoy. Bernard, good luck to the McKinley Tigers. We'll be rooting for you. Thank you. <laughs> and thank and, you for joining us. And thanks. thanks uh, so thanks, Osa and Bernard, for joining us. And that's uh, what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Andrew Howard and Eric Petagura to tell us about some recent discoveries with exoplanets. Are you curious about whether planets like ours are common or uncommon? One of a kind, perhaps. We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of this conversation, so please give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, this is live, so you can tweet us your questions at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. We are monitoring Twitter, and, of course, this is Bite Marks Cafe. Signing people up for the Affordable Care Act hasn't gone so smoothly. 
not quite like 50 years ago. It's easy to make the case to an older American in 1966, you know what? You've got hospital insurance now that you've already paid for. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, signing up a country. Next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm David Bedrick, the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to bring love and soul back into psychology. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to Bite Marsh Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Andrew Howard and Eric Pettigura. Both uh, Andrew and Eric are astronomers who hunt for extrasolar planets using telescopes up on Mauna Kea. Andrew is on the faculty at the Institute for Astronomy at the University of Hawaii, and Eric is an astronomy graduate student at UC Berkeley who is in residence in Hawaii this year, and both have teamed up to discover planets beyond our solar system. And to what can you attribute this explosion of exoplanet discoveries? We'd love to hear your comments or questions. And of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Andrew and Eric, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks Great so much to be for here. having us. Now, uh, Andrew, you know, we, we uh, had you on uh, back in January of this year, and uh, we called that show Exoplanet Palooza because, you know, of course, we love exoplanets. And it was kind of more of a, a sort of an intro show to uh, exoplanets. And at that time, even I, can, I think back then, I mean, there were a fair number of discoveries taking place. Um, maybe give us a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, some basic understanding of exoplanets and, and, and why there's so much interest in them. So first of all, exoplanets are planets that orbit stars other than the sun. These are outside of our own solar system. And the hunt for exoplanets bore its first fruit about 20 years ago when so-called hot Jupiters were discovered orbiting other stars. These are Jupiter-sized planets that are orbit extremely close to their host star and are blowtorched to thousands of degrees, uh, and they're extremely hot. But since then, we've made great progress discovering a lot of planets more like the ones in our own solar system, planets orbiting farther away, planets that are smaller and less massive. And in the last several years, we've made a lot of progress finding planets that have characteristics a lot more like the Earth. And what Eric and I came here to tell you about today are two discoveries related to planets that are Earth-sized. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that we like to talk about when we cover these discoveries, which many of uh, are made uh, using instruments and by, by, uh, by researchers here in Hawaii, is the different methods by which exoplanets are detected. You mentioned that the first fruit born of the search were these large Jupiter-sized planets, and that was in part because uh, they had a stronger, for example, gravitational effect on their stars. And even if you couldn't see them optically, uh, you could tell that the star was wobbling back and forth as the planet was going around it, for example. And so I think that as we've seen technology in space observation improve, uh, there are other techniques that, that allow you to see them. And I think we're at the point now where you are also optically imaging these exoplanets. But perhaps you could give us a, a kind of a, an overview of those methods. You have the gravitational uh, impact, for example, but what are some of the others? 
Well, so just to review the first two methods that uh, really uh, borne the most fruit. The first is the Doppler method, sometimes called the wobble method. And here we can't actually see the planet. It's much too faint. But what we detect is the wobble of the host star as it's pulled on gravitationally by the orbiting planet. And based on the pattern of the wobbles, we can figure out all sorts of details about the planet's mass and its orbit and so forth. The other method that's in wide use today is the so-called transit method. This is, you might think of it as the eclipse method. And for planets that happen to be seen edge-on, their orbits are edge-on, we, we observe the planet going across the disk of the star, blocking a little bit of the light of the star. Mm-hmm. And it's this winking out of the starlight that we detect as the transiting planets. But only a tiny fraction would, I would imagine, that would work on because it would have to be in that line, you know, in that line of sight towards Earth. Yeah, it's a really hard measurement. For example, the Earth passing in front of the sun blocks only one ten thousandth of the light from the sun. So you have to be able to monitor the brightness of a star and detect this minute change uh, over time. Now, Eric, you know, when you start to look at these uh, large, let's say, gas planets, I mean, I can see where you would see perhaps something uh, dimming in the star that it it, uh, traverses. Uh, When you start to talk about smaller exoplanets, the Earth-sized exoplanets, what what is it that's helping you detect those? Well, as Andrew explained, it's the transit technique. Um, So the the idea is basically the same. You're measuring shadows of planets. Mm -hmm. And for planets that are the size of Jupiter, they produce sort of a 1% dimming in the star's light. And that's actually detectable from the ground. It's hard, but you can do it. Now, an Earth-sized planet dims the star by 1 one-hundredth of that amount, so 1 ten-thousandth. So you really need to go to space to make that measurement. There's just no way to do it from the ground. So what really helped us detect all these Earth-sized planets was the Kepler Space Telescope, which was launched by NASA about four years ago. And Kepler has been the most phenomenal planet-finding machine ever made. Uh, It's detected, you know, thousands and thousands of planets. And only by measuring the brightnesses of stars from space can we achieve the necessary precision to detect planets as small as Earth. And Mm -hmm. the Kepler mission was specifically to look for extrasolar planets, I believe, but it's also, is it near the end of its planned mission length? So Kepler completed Ah. its nominal three-and-a-half-year mission. Um, Of course, there was enough fuel on board the Kepler Space Telescope to continue taking data. However, shortly into the so-called extended mission, Kepler lost one of its critical reaction wheels, which it uses to help point the space telescope. So Kepler is not currently taking data, although the engineers at NASA are currently thinking of ingenious ways of repurposing uh, the Kepler telescope so that it can continue finding planets. Mm-hmm. Now, when um, uh, I guess uh, this this effort to to look at planets uh, and uncover, you know, these these exoplanets um, are. A lot of the work has been done by, I guess there's a, a Kepler team and there's obviously other teams that are looking at this data. I mean, what, how would you characterize the different teams that are working on uncovering these exoplanets? Sure. So Kepler is a, a public mission. It's funded by the taxpayer. So, of course, the data are public. It's available to anybody. Any of, any of you or your listeners can go to uh, you know, the NASA website and download Kepler data, and mm-hmm. I encourage people to do it. And that's exactly what we did. And there are other teams all across the country and the world that are using publicly available data from Kepler to search for planets, search for planets uh, with transit timing variations, Mm -hmm. planets, uh, you know, that may may have moons. So there's so much you can do with this, this incredibly rich data set. 
We are talking to uh, Andrew Howard and Eric Pettigura, researchers at the Institute for Astronomy here at the University of Hawaii. It's Exoplanet Palooza once again here on Bite Marks Cafe. So if you've been curious about uh, maybe... Uh, Marvin the Martian watching us <laughs> from another planet. You can try to pose that question to these experts and give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. You can also tweet us on Twitter. Now, Andrew, one of the things that prompted us to want to cover this topic, although it does seem that uh, fortunately, again, discoveries are, are fairly constant, at least monthly. We're able to cover a, a new planet and various ways that it can be described and and different things that people are concluding about their composition, there have been a couple of significant uh, discoveries made uh, based here in Hawaii in the last month. Yeah, that's right. So one of the big leaps that we've had with Earth-sized planets is that while the Kepler Space Telescope is now finding dozens, even hundreds of these Earth-sized planets, for most of them, we only know that they're Earth size and about how far away from their host star. We don't know if, what they're made of. We don't know what their masses of these planets are. But there was a recent planet, so-called, it's this planet called Kepler-78b, that had all of the right ingredients to measure the mass, and we already know that it's Earth size. And so uh, a team of astronomers that I uh, worked with, we used the Keck telescope on Mauna Kea, and we used this so-called Doppler or wobble method that I talked about earlier, and we measured the mass of this planet. And what we found is that this Earth-sized planet has an Earth-like density. It didn't have to. It could have, been, uh, could have had a puffier, gas-rich atmosphere, which would have made it a lower density. But in fact, we found that it's the density of Earth, which probably means it's made of the same stuff as Earth, primarily rock and iron. Mm-hmm. So this is the first example of a rocky Earth-sized planet outside our solar system. How do you measure density? Well, if you know what the size of something is, if you know the diameter mm-hmm. and you know the mass of something, you know the density is just the uh, the mass divided by the volume. Mm-hmm. So it's really kind of a, a high school level calculation. How do you know the mass? The mass comes from this Doppler wobble technique. Okay. So if the planet was twice as big, we would have seen a wobble twice as big. Uh-huh. And if the planet was you know, had twice the diameter, it would have blocked out four times the light so as seen by the Kepler telescope. you're making uh, some measurements based on some measurements that you can make on the sun or the star that it's, it's orbiting. Yeah, so the amazing thing is we haven't actually seen any light from this planet. We've only detected its impact on the star. We've mm. seen the shadow of this planet across the star, mm-hmm. and we've seen how much this planet tugs on its host star gravitationally. Mm-hmm. And I should also mention there's one important feature of this planet that I've left out. It sounds so far it sounds a lot like home, but this planet actually orbits its host star every 8 hours. So it's it's, it's, in a hurry. it's skimming over <laughs> the surface of the star and it's it's blowtorch to something like 5000 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, um, uh, Eric, one of the things that I know uh, we we is one of the factors when we talk about exoplanets is that it's distance from its sun. And I did get the feeling that there's been an interest, of course, of finding planets orbiting what we call the Goldilocks zone, where it's not too hot, where a lot of these discoveries have been, and certainly not too cold, not too far out. Uh, is it because of the Doppler effect that, again, it's just the the exoplanets we're able to detect are the ones that are generally closer to a sun? Yeah, it's it's the classic uh, losing your keys in a dark alleyway, right? You look The first place you look is under the streetlight. So if you look at the, his, the history behind exoplanet detection, we've always sort of pushed the techniques as far as we can. And, and, and as we improve techniques, we can detect planets that are smaller 
planets that are farther out. So Kepler is the first instrument capable of detecting Earth-sized planets at Earth orbital distances. And what we showed recently was that by detecting planets with Kepler and making the appropriate uh, statistical corrections, you can think of it as basically taking a, a survey of extrasolar planets, we were able to determine that one in five stars like the sun has an Earth-sized planet that orbits in the so-called habitable zone. So the one in five ratio was, was more about the fact that uh, you'll find an Earth-sized exoplanet in one in five stars as opposed to one in five stars has exoplanets? One in five stars like the sun has an Earth-sized planet, so uh -huh. a planet that's between the size of Earth and twice the size of Earth that orbits in a range of orbits that uh, permits liquid water on the surface. So what we know now, uh, and this is a separate result from Kepler, is that nearly every star has a planet. Planets seem to be the rule rather than the exception. Mm -hmm. So the one in five ratio is just about Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone. Now, that was part of the second uh, sort of big announcement that you guys rolled out this past month. Yeah, indeed. And so we had this kind of uh, these two big announcements that came at this so-called Kepler Science Conference mm -hmm. that happened uh, last month. And uh, what I think, if you put the two results together, it paints a really um, kind of amazing picture. Eric described how Earth-sized planets are common. One of the challenges with this study is we only know that the planets that Eric is talking about are the size of Earth and they're the temperature of Earth. We don't know if they're you know, puffy gas balls or if they're made of rock like the Earth. But now with this planet called Kepler-78b, admittedly, it's a tad too hot for us to go uh, and walk on. Mm -hmm. But it shows us that nature knows how to make Earth-sized rocky planets. So I think it's likely that at least some of the planets that Eric is describing, these one in five planets, are likely to be rocky as well. So I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around it because, of course, anything in astronomy, the numbers are enormous. So when you're saying of stars of a specific class like Earth, have uh, like our sun, <laughs> have planets similar to our makeup, in total, is that at all possible to quantify? Are we saying that uh, we're, we're talking about 10 billion stars like ours, uh, one-fifth of them have uh, planets perhaps like ours around it? Well, there's an awful lot of stars in the galaxy. <laughs> yes. um, and if you do the math, it's something like 40 billion Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone. Mm -hmm. So that's a handful of Earth-sized um, lukewarm planets per person on the Earth. Wow. Now, is there any way that you can start to get an idea of the uh, composition of the atmosphere? Or is that too difficult. So the, the measurements that we've been talking about today are, especially Eric's uh, discussion, is basically a statistical measurement. Mm -hmm. We took a census of these planets. It turns out that these planets are pretty far away. They're hundreds of light years away. If we want to study a planet in detail, we have to find our nearest neighbors, and we have to find the planets that are only a handful of light years away so that they're relatively bright, and we can use the the telescopes atop Mauna Kea, and we can use the telescopes in space to study them in detail. Mm -hmm. So now we've shown that they're common, and we need to find them nearby and study them in detail. Now, um, a lot of the research that we cover on our show is uh, there's, a, there's a large survey, a sky survey, or, or a large-scale census, and a lot of data is collected. And actually, once the data collection has been complete or the mission is complete, you can spend years just poring over that data set. Like, uh, they've collected it all, but now it's going to take forever to actually examine every little piece. Is that kind of still the world we're in, uh, whether it's Keck or any other sky survey? Absolutely. I mean, Kepler has collected so much data. Um, you know, I said before that, um, you know, you can detect Jupiter's 
from the ground. But with the precision allowed by Kepler lets you detect planets as small as the Earth. So you can see already that there's this huge paradigm shift in terms of precision. Uh, from the ground, you know, you can only observe at night. Kepler observes all the time, 24 hours a day for years. So Kepler has opened up a incredibly uh, amazing new window on the cosmos. So we've only just begun to dig into the data. So we'll be, we'll be working with Kepler data for years to come. Now, I'm kind of curious uh, about the sort of the, the competition to, to publish. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, there's teams, right? And you guys are all looking at the data. You guys are all analyzing to find the, 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 the latest discovery. Uh, to what extent is there kind of a, a competition going on to, to be the first one to find these things? Well, so I mentioned earlier this planet called Kepler-78. This mm-hmm. is the first rocky Earth-sized planet. And my team wasn't the first one to realize that this is a great opportunity. This is our first chance to use the Keck telescope to make this measurement. Other astronomers realized this too. And we had a, at a meeting, we just, we kind of asked each other, do you want to help out on our project? And they, you know, they said, well, do you want to help out on ours? So we made an agreement that we would work completely independently. This, a team led by Francesco Pepe used a completely different telescope, different instrument. They analyzed their own data and we submitted our papers to the journal Nature on the same day. And we found out then that they um, observed the same thing. They independently measured the mass of this planet uh, to be uh, to give a density that's the same as the Earth. So this is really sort of the gold standard in science mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Uh, two independent measurements agree to within the I was I was just uh, intrigued by, you know, the press release, but it is embargoed. There's no word to be spoken of anything about exoplanets. And the intrigue kind of was, was uh, captivating. And I was thinking maybe there's this whole, you know, sort of competition among the astronomers to... Uh, come out with the first. But it, you're right. I mean, it is kind of the, the the gold standard. And if you can both be publishing something in a prestigious uh, publication like Nature and it, it unveils, you know, uh, uh, reveals, you know, your discovery sort of independently, that's a great validation. Yeah, and then Nature, uh, the journal, decided that this was important enough that they wanted to devote mm-hmm. two papers to it. So I thought that was that that was great. Well, I mean, kind of on that front, you know, Eric, you're a stu- you're studying at, out of UC Berkeley, correct? Mm-hmm. But um, you came to Hawaii. Now we here obviously are very interested in discoveries and research happening here in Hawaii. But I'm going to ask you perhaps a, a non scientific question. It can't have just been the beaches and the weather. I mean, what was in your head when you said, this is where I want to work and do some of my research? Well, you know, most most of the reason is sitting right next to me. Um, so I knew Andrew very well from my time at Berkeley. Andrew was a postdoc at Berkeley. So uh, we had worked very closely together, very productively together at Berkeley. So I figured, come out to Hawaii, get a, a, a change of scenery, learn to surf, uh, and do some great science. Are there any, uh, you know, being that uh, Kepler data is already something that you have to analyze, is there added advantage to being able to access the telescopes up on Mauna Kea? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, one of the things uh, that Kepler does is it tells you the relative size between the planet and the star. You don't actually know the size as an absolute number. Uh, you only know the ratio. But what we use the Keck telescope to do is take spectra of the stars with Earth-sized planets. And by using these spectra, we're able to figure out exactly how big the star is and hence know the properties of the planet more precisely. Mm-hmm. So that was a key role that the Keck Observatory played in this result. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious uh, if, if 
Keck is the only telescope that you might use, or, or, or you know, do you have access to others? Um, we want to kind of hold that thought. We will come back after this short break to continue our conversation with Andrew Howard and Eric Pettigrew about the discovery of planets outside our own solar system. If we can mathematically determine probabilities of their existence, can we start to make predictions about the possibility on life of life on these planets. We'd, of course, love to hear your thoughts as well. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. On the next On Being. The great American experiment with building a multiracial democracy is still in the laboratory. It's not as if anybody goes around, gets up this morning and say, boy, I'm going to be prejudiced this morning. We don't do that. Phyllis Tickle and Vincent Harding. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday morning at 10, following weekend edition. HPR welcomes up-and-coming indie band Streetlight Cadence to the Atherton Studio on December 7th. Fresh from busking the streets of Honolulu with their original compositions and everything from Pachelbel to Coldplay, Streetlight Cadence takes shelter in the Atherton on Saturday, December 7th at 7.30. Tickets at 955-8821 during business hours or online at hprtickets.org. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. We're talking to Andrew Howard and Eric Pettigura about the discovery of new planets beyond our solar system. And, of course, these planets are occurring and being discovered more often, and uh, we are learning new things about planet formation. Of course, if you have a comment or question, give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. At this time, we want to welcome Daniel from Laie for uh, uh, giving us a call here on Bite Marsh Cafe. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Sure. You have a question for our astronomers here? Yeah. I, um, you know, I'm really impressed with all the work that you've been doing. Really grateful for all your efforts. Um, I wanted to know, I know it, the, the probability or the, the feasibility of actually traveling to these places is out of our realm of understanding or predicting, but... Again, you know, the feasibility of doing what we're doing now, what you guys are doing now, which is kind of a, a simple technique using Doppler, is really something that wasn't really predictable a long time ago either. So, I mean, could you maybe give me your best guess of um, if there was any way of getting to some sort of a place like this, what kinds of, um, you know, of, of, I don't know, of ideas might it entail? You mean uh, to actually travel to one of these uh, locations? Is that right. what you're getting at? Excellent. That good, sounds that's good. A good. I'd question. like to know. It's a pretty hard problem. We have rockets right now that allow us to get around the solar system on a time scale of years. And if you use these same rockets to travel to another star, unfortunately it's going to take, you know, a thousand, maybe ten thousand years to get to the nearest star. If we could build a nuclear rocket, we could probably go a bit faster. But one problem is when you get to the nearest star, say we went to Alpha Centauri, you'd be going so fast that you couldn't really slow down or stop. So you would pass through the star system in a matter of hours. And so any science that you wanted to, wanted to do, you'd have to be you know, looking out the window as the <laughs> scenery is passing mm-hmm, you by. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, this uh, it's an interesting question. And th- thank you, Daniel, for uh, giving, giving us that call. We also had a shy caller that asked something kind of similar, which is, 
if there are so many sort of planets that are of Earth size, uh, Earth size, would it be prudent of us to start to focus on stars that are near us or or more popular that and see if they're uh, planets orbiting them? Yeah, so this, the results that we're talking about today is really the census. It tells us how many of these small planets there are out there. And the next step is to look for our, the nearest neighbors to mm-hmm, find these mm-hmm. nearby Earth-sized planets. And there's a couple ways that, that we'd like to do that. One of them is called the TESS space, uh, space mission. It's a NASA mission. It's going to launch in 2017. It will, we think, find all of the nearby transiting planets. These are the planets that we see edge on and that eclipse their host stars. Farther down the road, um, there's, NASA has ambitions to build a terrestrial planet finder. Hmm. And this is a mission that we think well, we can actually take a picture of these Earth-sized planets orbiting their host stars. It won't be a picture where you can resolve continents and oceans that the planets that we see will just be little pale blue dots of light next to their extremely bright stars. Mm-hmm. Oh, I... Um, <clears throat> I was just caught off guard because uh, we have the calls coming in, and uh, we've got uh, Kevin queued up from Maui. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi there. Hi. A question about adaptive optics, which is a computer process used to remove the effects of atmospheric stirring from ground-based observations. I was wondering if that process is helpful at all for uh, satellite observations, for removing, say, dust cloud effects. Fascinating question. Yeah, so, Eric, do you want to try that one? So, as you mentioned, uh, you know, adaptive optics help remove the turbulence caused by the Earth's atmosphere. And as far as I know, I don't, I can't think of any uh, application for adaptive optics in space. However, we do need to contend with uh, physical effects on the telescope due to external sources. For example, the Kepler Space Telescope is heated and cooled by the sun. Uh, it's kind of, it's torqued and its position changes. So when you're making measurements that are so precise, every little sort of, you know, pin drop is, is felt. Um, so we actually have to work very hard to remove those systematic effects. So it's not adaptive optics in the same sense, but it's correcting for errors induced by uh, physical effects. Mm-hmm. Okay. And are the precisions that you're talking about uh, on the order of, um, we call it, interference? I'm not, I don't know enough physics, but, uh, you know, precise measurements of distance can be used by comparing basically atomic, or, you know, wavelengths of light. And uh, you use, what's that called? Yeah, so maybe what you're uh, sort of alluding to is um, an instrument called an interferometer. And right. that's used in a number of uh, of of astrophysical um, questions. Uh, The Kepler telescope does not use interferometry. However, one of the proposed ways for um, detecting Earth-like planets, Earth-sized planets around nearby stars is to exactly do just that, uh, build an interferometer and detect these planets by basically canceling out the light of its host star. Okay, right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for calling. Right. Okay. We love our neighbor island uh, callers, and of course, uh, you know, with all the uh, telescopes up on Mauna Kea and Maui, I mean, I think there's a, a good size uh, astronomy community uh, on on uh, the neighbor islands as well. Now, you know, you were uh, Andrew talking about Kepler, and Kepler uh, it has already sort of done its scans. You've got the data, and this this new telescope that might be focused on some perhaps uh, nearby or another segment of space. Is it? 
How big of a swath of space space was Kepler really looking at? And with this new telescope, is it a more confined area or a, a new sort of uh, patch of space? Yeah, so the, the Kepler telescope stared at a patch of sky. And for those of you who know your constellations, it was between Cygnus and Lyra in the northern sky. And it was uh, it's about 400 full moons on the sky if you were to make a checkerboard uh, of full moons. This new mission called TESS, mm-hmm. it doesn't stare at one spot in the sky like Kepler did for four years. It has a much bigger field of view. It sees, you know, tens, uh, ten times the view that Kepler did, and then it only stays there for a month. So every month it's going to reposition itself, and over two years it can survey the entire sky for these planets. The, the downside is that while Kepler, um, with its fixed gaze, could detect planets that take a full year to go around their star, you want to you want to see these transits more than once. Mm-hmm. Um, TESS is only going to detect the short period planets that are close to their star and repeat more frequently. Mm-hmm. Now, we're talking to Andrew Howard and Eric Pettigura. Both are astronomers working over at the Institute for Astronomy and uncovering exoplanets. If you have a comment or question, feel free to give us a call. The number here is 941-3689 on Oahu. And, of course, from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. Now, Andrew, you know, um, and Eric, you know, Ryan and I, we both uh, love exoplanets, and we've been kind of covering this one story that uh, was of uh, kind of captivating to us, and it was about an exoplanet that wasn't orbiting a star. It was sort of a lone planet floating in space. Tell us a little bit about what you think about that exoplanet. Yeah, well, so this is a, <laughs> a free-floating planet discovered by my colleague Mike Liu and, mm-hmm. and his team. And they what they discovered was, you know, almost all of the planets that we've seen to date, they orbit a host star like our sun. This planet has no host, and so it's just floating out there, slowly cooling off. Um, and what we know about it is that it's a few times the mass of Jupiter. Um, and it's in this class of objects that's somewhere between a planet and a so-called brown dwarf. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it, uh, there are, I mean, space is not a calm place. Space can be a very violent place. And there's a number of reasons why a large class planet might be thrown off somewhere. Yeah. So it, one of the questions is how did this thing form? Did it form orbiting a star and then maybe it got caught in a game of cosmic pinball and ejected when it had a close encounter with another planet in the system? Or did it did it form just by the coll- gravitational collapse of the cloud of material that if it was a little bit bigger would have became a star, but it was it was insufficient and it just became this uh, orphan planet? Mm. Now, oh, Eric, um, certainly my mind continues to turn to the the possibility of life. And the more these censuses show the number of planets grows, the possibility gets greater. It might still be infinitesimal, but it's greater than it was. And uh, a lot of times we hear scenarios where we'll eventually pick up a radio signal from another intelligent life, but that makes a number of presumptions that they would develop that technology, that it would be aimed in our direction, and that it would eventually reach us over some ridiculous amount of time. Is it fair to say that as we get uh, better technology for observation and detection, that uh, the first signs of life on an exoplanet would most likely be through these wavelengths and colors because of the the makeup or composition of the surface of a planet or or its distance from a planet than anything like a radio signal? That's that's a really good question. Um, so what you're sort of alluding to um, is this sort of concept uh, called the, the Drake equation. You know, we don't know 
what exact parameters are required for you know, life on other planets. But we can sort of parameterize our ignorance um, and sort of figure out, you know, estimate how many intelligent civilizations there are in the galaxy. It has to do with the number of stars, what fraction of those stars have planets, what fraction of those planets develop life, and so on. So we haven't answered that question yet. But what we've done is we've addressed one of the terms, which is how many, what fraction of stars have planets. Mm -hmm. And if you combine the number of uh, stars in the galaxy with the number of Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone per star, you get a number that's in the tens of billions. So what that tells you is something profound. Life is either rare, rare at the factor of, you know, one in 10 billion, or the galaxy is teeming with life. There's no other interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the question is, does that life actually develop intelligence? And unfortunately, we only have a sample size of one, so you can't right, really right. Uh, make any predictions with such a small sample size, especially because, uh, you know, we're, we're around to ask the question. Now, the other, the other side to that question, though, was how are we going to actually detect this life? Is it going to be sort of indirectly by trying to measure gases in the atmosphere that are produced by life? Or is it going to be sort of direct detection of an intelligent civilization? And I really don't have a good answer for that question. I think um, we're approaching uh, being able to detect gases in the atmospheres of these planets and actually being able to figure out what these atmospheres are made of. But we won't really know for sure if those were produced by life. They could be produced by other things. Mm -hmm. So maybe a a sort of a traditional, uh, you know, signal, a radio signal from another planet is uh, is maybe more unlikely. But I think that would be more compelling. Certainly. So do you think uh, there has been any... kind of uh, convergence of the work that, I don't know, the, the folks at SETI are doing with the discovery of Earth-sized planets around certain stars and them perhaps aiming their, their you know, sort of listening devices to, toward those, uh, those stars? Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we, we follow very closely what the, the scientists uh, who are involved with SETI, uh, both Andrew and I are actually involved with SETI uh, at a, sort of at a small, a small level now. Um, and of course, there are there are scientists right now who are pointing radio telescopes, pointing the most powerful radio telescopes on the planet Earth at the stars that we know have planets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the ways in which mm. our uh, our work is sort of fed off each other. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Sounds good. We got a caller. Uh, we want to welcome Eric uh, calling from Los Angeles to uh, Bite Mark Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, so uh, Andrew, this is actually Eric from college. Hope you recognize my voice. Oh, um, I do. <laughs> cool. I, cool. So, um, yeah, I guess I was wondering, um, uh, I actually had a, a few questions, but one of the ones is just how, how far out can't, does Kepler look? I mean, like, is it only looking in our galaxy? Or I mean, obviously, it probably can't make it all the way out to, you know, the end of the observable universe. But so, so just what kind of range are we looking at? Yeah, so it's good to hear your voice, Eric. Um, Kepler looks, you can imagine the view of Kepler as sort of a cone cutting through the Milky Way galaxy. And, of course, in this cone, it's pretty narrow when you're close to the Earth, but it expands as you go farther and farther away. Most of the stars observed by Kepler are something like uh, a thousand or a few thousand light years away. And that's a small fraction of the distance to the center uh, of our galaxy. So we're still, while we're searching a little farther than we have with the ground-based telescopes, we're still, um, relatively speaking, in the in the local neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Now, Eric, uh, 
your 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 this is for studies this is for your your developing your professional career i have to ask um what is the holy grail for planet hunters what is the thing that when you go to sleep and you have that ridiculous dream of of accepting your nobel prize i mean what is the thing that uh would knock everyone out. I mean, what are what are people really hoping to achieve with these planet searches? Um, so I'm not going to speculate on any sort of prizes, but um, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of us, sort of in our quiet moments, have sort of a similar thought, which is, you know, how special is the Earth? And I think that's a question that people have been asking for thousands of years. And uh, you know, over the course of uh, of science and astronomy, we've realized that the Earth isn't the only planet, the Sun isn't the only star. So I I feel incredibly fortunate to sort of play a part in this sort of progression of human understanding. Now, it could be that we're the only planet that has life and intelligent life. Um, so I'm definitely not going to say that uh, there are other beings out there, but uh, that's something I, I, I want to know the answer to. It's also interesting that when you discover, you know, sort of these uh, or come to the conclusion that they're rocky planets, and now that we've gotten some photographs back from Mars and you actually look at the rocks and they don't look that foreign or that alien, and it could actually look like, you know, like, and of course we've done, you know, the analog over at the uh, Mauna Loa uh, or on the Big Island. It's not that far off. It's not that uh, um, sort of extraterrestrial, right? It's just like, you know, like a neighbor. And I think as you start to discover some of these uh, uh, dense planets, I mean, you know, like you said, they could be made of very similar objects like here on Earth. Yeah. One thing I, I really like about this discovery of Kepler-78, this is the lava planet that we think is made of rock, is that we measured the mass of it. We made this crucial measurement um, on Mauna Kea, mm-hmm. which, of course, used to be lava. It's a, a cooled uh, volcano. So here we are atop um, a cooled lava volcano discovering a lava world. Great. Where can we find out more about uh, all the exoplanet discoveries that you guys are uncovering? You should go to the homepage of the Institute for Astronomy okay. here at the University of Hawaii, and that's ifa.hawaii.edu. And I also know the IFA uh, posts some really neat stuff on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash uhifa. And, of course, uh, you know, the IFA is also on Twitter, so you might want to follow them on, on Twitter. And <laughs> They're we'll, everywhere. We'll, yeah, we'll put the, uh, the, you know, all the links up on our show notes. Well, both Andrew Howard and Eric uh, Pettigrew are astronomers and planet hunters at the Institute for Astronomy. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Great being here. Thanks so much. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we will uh, talk, talk about, about our gadget show. Absolutely, our annual gadget show. If you don't know what to buy, there's that Xbox, there's that PS4. Give us a call. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at BiteMarksCafe.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a song that you can go planet hunting with. It's by Fortet. And a song is called MoMA. Happy Thanksgiving, and see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.